the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week, episode 130, Venture Vultures, recorded February 14th, 2014. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. And welcome to another AV Week. We are live. My name is George Tucker. I'll be your host today. Tim is otherwise occupied. Joining me today are two fabulous guests that I've been meaning to talk to for a good long time. First off, meet Christopher Jane. He is the founder and CTO of Mersive. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. All right. And also is actually a longtime friend, Daniel Kippy Cash. I call him Kippy, but he is CEO and co-founder of the Da Vinci Group. Welcome, Dan. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, good to see you again. Absolutely, it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a good while. <laughs> well, all right, let's start this off. There are a number of articles that we've been looking at this week, and the first one is something dear to my heart. We just had the share the the whole thing about going after. I don't know if you guys saw this. Uh, fight back day, where we wanted to say that the net neutrality should be real and any the any uh, the spying should sure not did. happen. Sorry, I, I signed that petition absolutely. Yeah. But I think this is actually related. The ISP lobby has already won limits on public broadband. This is from Ars Technica, our good friends at Ars Technica. So I'm going to start this one off to you, Daniel. So the immersive and uh, not immersive, sorry. The, the ISP guys have said that they want to limit public Wi-Fi, public Internet. Is it really bad for business if a place like, say, Philadelphia gives its citizens free Internet access? Well, no, I don't think it's a negative. I think it's a, it's a positive that should be done. Because uh, there are, you know, in reality, a lot of people that can't afford that monthly uh, or they might be in a situation where they can't have their own direct feed or line from the providers. Um, I think the reason most of them are cutting it back is because, you know, one, okay, budgets. But secondly, I think the service providers want more money. Uh, they're seeing that, you know, the more they can get uh, on subscriptions, the more they can actually keep billing people for higher bandwidth usage. It's, it's all a spreadsheet. Uh, I think it's a shame. They did it here in Riverside, California. Uh, they had a decent network, and they just announced they're going to take the whole thing out and not have any more, you know, free Wi-Fi. And I, I think it's a shame, you know, quite honestly. Well, Chris, I'll, I'll point this to you. Is it, is it, it? So Daniel makes the point that it's it's a shame, and that it, people really liked it, and that those without the ability to really afford some of the higher level broadband uh, tools. It, the question really then comes down to, is Internet access a right or a privilege? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think the the underlying debate really is more about, is it a, you know, is this common infrastructure or is it, um, you know, technology that's leveraged in the unmuted? Is that right? Yeah, well, but... I can hear you. 
So oh, okay. Great. Yeah, no, I'm thinking that it's a it's a public infrastructure debate versus technology development in the capitalist sort of realm where things get created for capitalist reasons. And I think I think for you know, I kind of fall down on the side of the it's public infrastructure and I think that's important. But um, you know, from if you want to be completely mercenary about it, if you look at how hotspots are deployed around the around the world, you probably could make the argument that commerce happens in more places when there's Wi Fi coverage. So I don't think it's necessarily a welfare program. It's about creating a um, an ecosystem for for commerce. Dan, I'm going to put this to you though. The the article makes a point where some of the people arguing against it say it's anti-competitive to business. It sort of makes it a municipal monopoly. Is there any really valid validity to that? Well, I think there's a slight validity to that, um, but it's one of those things where you can really debate it on both sides very well, uh, but I think it comes down to their defense of that is, well, business. Well, businesses are going to have their own provider anyway. The businesses aren't using this. The ones that might use it, you know, it might be, like, for example, here in Riverside, they've got a little downtown area. It might be someone who has a little cart outside that can't afford to pay Verizon their data rates, but they could swipe a, you know, a square credit card using the, you know, the Wi-Fi. So that kind of business, I could see using it, and you know, it'd be a helpful thing. But you know, them falling back on it being an infrastructure that businesses are going to use and take advantage of, I, I just can't see that. You know, I think this is all still about just money, <laughs> you know, in my opinion. Maybe you have to tax it. I mean, maybe if it's going to be public infrastructure that helps business, maybe there's a, there's a surcharge or something that gets spread out a bit. The cities would like that, and that yeah. would make sense. It's a middle yeah. ground where there's some revenue, and yeah. you know, that's a nice idea, actually. Well, well, I, mean, I, had a, I, had a, I have to just say I had a funny personal experience with this when I was at the University of Kentucky because you know, I joined that, that university um, as part of a networking and visualization team that came in from all over the country, and uh, the very first thing we were asked is, what can you do for folks in eastern Kentucky that have no technology, uh, access to technology that you have in, say, downtown Lexington, Kentucky? And what we came up with was, why don't we just use the UHF broadcast channel from the from the TV to send broadband to Eastern Kentucky? And you know, you can probably guess what happened. There was a lot of local support and almost no support at the federal level um, because we were trying to usurp you know Verizon and folks that were out there building antennas. So <laughs> the same thing happened you know 10 years ago. It's playing yeah. out bigger now for sure. The little voice versus the mammoth voice with millions of dollars of lobbyists in Washington right. was squashy on that one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> is there it's so the, I guess the question is and I'll open this to both of you. Is there a way we can make this happen? Is there a way to make both business and the municipal internet, we'll call it, workable? Do we, uh, well, do we go to our governors? Do we go to our states people? I mean, what, what do we do to make this happen so that both are happy? Well, the only thing you can do really to drive that is from the street level back. So you'd have to go to your local municipality and, you know, council people and so on and drive it uh, and push it up the ladder, you know, to get to the state level. Um, and it's a tough one because, again, it, it is driven by the money. So I think if enough people contacted their local uh, assemblymen and so on, they'd realize this is important to people. Uh, but on, the way we see things now quite often is unless people are screaming and making an issue of it, um, you know, as it goes further up, they just kind of, 
you know, push it off to the side. Um, you know, where's the money coming from? Where's it go? But I like, you know, the idea that even if you taxed it a little bit, yeah. uh, that would give some some reason for the you know town or cities to say, well, it's not being fully burdened on us. Uh, and it comes down to that. But it's a tough one because as soon as you start just trying to make a change without you know a grassroots effort, uh, it's a very difficult machine trying to fight the politics and the lobbyists, even on something like this. Uh, but I yeah. think it would be nice because there are a lot of people that would benefit from having the Wi-Fi. But seriously, I mean, you know, some poor person working in a restaurant making under minimum wage and tips, uh, they can't afford the data plans on the cell side, but they might have a device where at least if they had some you know, Wi-Fi access, they could use it. And I think everyone just kind of steps aside that there are people out there that can't afford you know, 29 to $89 a month at home or adding that $39 package to your Verizon or T-Mobile, um, you know, those things all add up. Hmm. Yeah, I do think you have to try to figure out a way to monetize at the municipal level if you're going to do that. I mean, I think the the spirit of what they want to do is great, but you have to ex at least explore how you would incentivize it in some way so the municipal governments have a reason to fight for it other than sort of more esoteric reasons, like, you know, things that we would actually love, like everyone's more educated, you can get access to online education easy and things like that without your $30 a month fixed fee. Hmm. All right, well, let's move on to something that's probably just as important that we've been fighting for. Uh, it is the coding, the year of the code. This is from our friends over in Europe. The year of the code is a PR fiasco. All right, well, the article's about a fiasco in implementing getting every student in high school and college to learn code. But this is something we've been talking about for a while, getting people to learn code. They've been calling it the new literacy. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll throw this to you, Christopher. Is it the new literacy, and what can we do to bring not just the young kids, but us, our guys, our compatriots, up to learning at least some kind of code to make them empowered to do things on the web? Yeah, that's super important, I think. And it's obviously something I find really interesting coming out of academics and teaching computer science. So. I mean, if you look at the industries of the world, almost all of them now have somehow run smack dab into software. So if you want to, um, you want to be an archaeologist or you want to be a construction manager or you want to do anything these days, I think you have to be well aware at least, or if you want to manage any of those processes, you have to at least understand um, how software impacts your industry. And to understand that, you've got to at least have dabbled in writing code. That would be like saying, you know, hey, I want to understand cooking, but I don't want to ever learn how to read a recipe. Um, I think it's really important, obviously. And I, I kind of, I'm kind of saddened by the the bad press that the Eurocode initiative has gotten. I knew some of the early efforts from the British Academy that were pushing that. Um, I think probably where they fell down the most is where um, they kind of focused on the coding without context. So that's a pet peeve of mine. Teaching how to write code or develop a computer program without understanding the heritage of how it came to be or why it's important or how machines interpret that code. I think it's, it's a dangerous path. Um, you know, like they're handing out Raspberry Pis and saying, write some code. That may not, that may not get you where you want to be. And I was kind of surprised. I mean, that's a country that gave us Alan Turing and Babbage and some very, very famous, interesting characters in the in the history of computer science, if you look at the curriculum they're using, it's really about the tactics of writing a, you know, a script. Hmm. Uh, Dan, it, 
our clients are becoming more and more intelligent about what kind of systems we're putting in. They know the specs, they understand them a little bit more, yet this part of it is still the mystery. Is it beneficial to have our higher-end clients understand how that process works? Uh, I think so. I think any kind of, you know, again, knowledge is power. So if you're dealing with a client that understands, you know, some of those issues, not even, you know, how to write a lot of code, but just respects and understands what it takes, uh, I think that makes much better uh, communications with the project. Uh, but I think it's even, you know, broader than that. You know, obviously for our industry, for our dealers, all of that would definitely help. But I think it's more of a global issue where, you know, this really should be a priority because any any country that is technologically savvy and has the infrastructure, uh, if people aren't learning how to code today, it's going to put them at such a disadvantage uh, as time goes on. And not that everybody needs to be a coder or they're going to be a, you know, computer, you know, scientist or something, but I think it's definitely a benefit that, you know, is better for everybody. And it's a shame that it gets caught up in something like this. The negativity comes out when, you're having a, a lot of negativity about educating people. Yeah. You know, wow, that's just such a tragic thought, uh, especially in something of that category, because there isn't anything, you know, that's going to go on in the future that won't involve code. I mean, very little around us today doesn't have some form of code in it somewhere. And uh, I think it's, you know, something that has to happen somehow, but uh, it just gets it's all mucked up and somebody fingers in the pie there that it's a shame to hear people attacking it. Um, yeah, I mean, even in our own industry, it's happening, right? I mean, when we founded Immersive, uh, you know, we were introduced to the AV channel pretty quick. I'm a software guy, right? And it felt like we were coming out, you know, coming out of two different worlds. But in the last couple of years, our resellers, uh, design consultants, everyone in the industry seems to at least at the surface level, understand what it means to use software and develop software even. Even development life cycles and code testing and beta releases, those are things I hear people in the industry talking about now in the AV space. So why wouldn't we be teaching kids about software like you teach them about how to do long division, right? I mean, it's it's a part <laughs> of our modern world. So Absolutely, yeah. Well, uh, and Chris, I'm going to throw this to you, though, as, an, as a former educator, as you said. Um, how do we get – Dan said it was contextual. Mm -hmm. So for our clients, for our kids, for people in general, what can we do to make it contextual for them so that learning code, this thing that they probably – some of the older sets see as the punch cards or full of you know high geomic math. Yeah. It's <laughs> something that they can really do and is, is beneficial to them. Yeah, I mean, I used to teach a, a cross-sectional course that the way we approached it, and I'm not saying it's necessarily the right thing to do, but I'm a big believer in contextual learning. You have to ask the students, what is it that you would like to accomplish? And then you explore, how can software help you do that? Well, then you better learn these tasks. I mean, you don't, if you, if you sit down and tell someone, we're going to learn this programming language and what a compiler is in the abstract, that's a very, that's a very big hill to climb. But if you tell them, hey, we're going to render a 3D model of the solar system by the end of the semester, and wouldn't that be cool if you could own that program and fly through space and look at planets? 
you know, this is a course I used to teach. So then you start saying, well, you got to learn how to load an image. Well, what's an image? How is it represented? You know, what are pixels and how is that data get loaded into a 3D model and how is that described? And suddenly it's, it becomes easier to teach because now the students are excited. In fact, in, at the um, graduate level, it gets much easier because you just ask people, what are, you, what are you interested in? Well, let's build that in software. You know, hmm. let's accomplish it with software. Dan, I'll put this to you as, as a final note on this. Do all of your staff know how to code in some way? Uh, no, actually hmm. not. And here's why. Um, as we started our company, uh, the Da Vinci Group, uh, you know, we're primarily a speaker company. Uh, but my whole background is control and software. So we had an entire initiative of developing a control platform and system that was going to do some unique things and hit a market segment that I thought wasn't being addressed. And in the last year, watching what's been going on uh, in the control you know, space that we're in, as well as broader uh, with Google and others, we just saw such a dynamic change that unless you're ready to commit and have um, a building full of software engineers, you're stepping into the wrong arena. So we actually just shelved the whole initiative and just sticking to audio. Um, you know, the guys that we do have understand code for like DSP and different mm -hmm. algorithms for that, but not so much as far as you know, developing a routine or programming for automation or things like that. Uh, we just saw it seems as if this area is moving so quickly that we realized it's not our, our best interest to invest all of our R&D money in that path. So. Oddly enough, I'm like a duck out of water here. I'm around a bunch of, you know, audio tweaky speaker guys, and, you know, I'm, I'm a software code guy. Uh, but I'm happy with that because it's the best thing for us long term. I think the market's going to see a tremendous shift, you know, in that area as far as the tech and, and automation. Well, and here's my question to that because I was listening to something called New Tech City. It's um, a WNYC, which is an NPR radio station here in New York. And the New Tech City host had never programmed. She writes lots of articles. She does lots of radio broadcasts about tech. But she had never actually entered into doing code. So she went into this immersive three-day, you know, we're going to teach you how to code by the end. And I believe they were using Java. Okay. And she said, well, you know, you guys just make up something that you think you have a need for. And her was keeping track of where her kids were. And that's the same thing I was thinking of with maybe guys like from your company. Is there something that pure tweaker head audio guys could really get from saying, I can make an app, I know how to make the app, and that would solve a problem of saying doing a calculation or getting something of that nature out in the open so that they could share it? Oh, sure. I mean, that, that definitely could play into it. Um, the guys we have, they could do that. I mean, they would just sit down and over a couple of days immerse themselves into it and learn what they need to do to write it. Um, so the ability is there. It's just a necessity or for some, if it's a corporation, ROI. You know, if you're going to do it, are you going to make any money on it? For the individual, is it a personal passion? Is it a money-making venture? Um, but I think anybody that's involved in software is out of their mind not to broaden their, their horizons and, and learn different things. I remember, you know, after I left Crestron, you know, one of the things I worked on was a system that heavily uh, used Java. And everybody, boy, we're nuts, we're crazy, you're an idiot, no one wants to use that because it was so early. <laughs> but we were saying, look at the power of the engine and um, you know, things like that. So I think for anyone that does do software, they should always be looking out to learn more, whatever it might be, because in, in that world, they're, 
always going to benefit from it. That's a good point. And, you know, software is also a great prototyping tool, too. So if you're looking for ROI on the R&D side, if you can simulate or write software for something that you don't have to build quite yet, that's definitely a, a good practice. I mean, we, here we'll, we have hardware partners, and we'll simulate their hardware and software when we set up, like, a big multi-projector wall or something. And it's all software-driven. It's fast turnaround times, and we say tweak that and move that button over here, and then, then it gets built. But, yeah. That's and the other that reason. is a, an amazing analogy because it's true. I mean, we've all dealt with it. I mean, there are a lot of executives and companies that grew up through the ranks that are technical, but there are a lot who aren't. And when you try and give them a presentation in PowerPoint or on paper, their yeah. eyes glaze over. Where if you can actually have the ability to, as you're saying, you know, prototype something, you know, yeah. they say a picture's worth a thousand words. Well, an actual app or right. working thing is worth a million words. Yep. Yeah, and especially these days, there's prototyping languages that are so easy to use and easy to learn that you can, you know, almost drag and drop and build your own applications. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, on the hot on the heels of that, another article we have is our friends at Google are introducing not Chromecast but something they're calling Chrome Box. <laughs> this is from TechCrunch News. Uh, with Chromebooks a success, and I guess they mean Chromecast. Google adds focus on Chrome boxes. Now, this is something that's entering into our world. This is for digital signage. Mm -hmm. And my suspicion is that this is going beyond digital signage. This is your replacement box. Uh, Dan, I'm going to start with you. What do you see this becoming? Is this something that we need to really worry about in the AV world? Or is this just another adjunct? Or is this something actually that... Time Warner and Comcast have to worry about, and that's why they're merging. Well, I think uh, in some ways, yes to all the above. Um, <laughs> I think the AV industry should be frightened beyond belief with this, because what's happening is you know, you're getting into uh, you know a foray of product and technology with companies that have their lunch budgets are more than some of the companies in our industry do annually a year. <laughs> And I think what's happening is this is just the beginning, and this is part of the reason why we stepped away from some of the projects we wanted to do, because the Crestron, AMX, Savants, and other automation companies in the AV world, um, they do a terrific job, but you're playing against a you know Goliath where they can have the ability to amortize these parts and hardware where they really don't care that much what they sell the box for. They want the information. They want content. Uh, their model is so different that they don't have to sell the box for a profit to really go where they want to go. And I think we're going to see that. I think that, you know, the Chrome box looks simple and what it is, but what happens when they throw a 232 port on it? What happens when they throw other little things? And then you have, you know, the little fish in the big pond. You've got a million developers who are code savvy that can write an app to have a homeowner program that Chrome box to then talk to this app that he wrote, it's a very different world. And I think the AV industry better wake up to it because it's going to really delude where are you making money, how are you making money. Uh, and I think the hardware side, we've seen it to some degree. Look what the iPad did. Yeah. Um, that, people think about that being such an old product, and it really isn't. Uh, and look at how that impacted our AV industry uh, you know, significantly in a small amount of time. So I think this is just the beginning of what Google's doing. 
I think this is just a small piece of the bigger puzzle they're putting together, in, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, it's funny because I, I look at it through a tiny bit different lens because of our presence in the, the enterprise conference room right now with our with our software for Solstice product. That is their big, you know, they're, they're joining the party for the unified communications play in the conference room. And um, they're positioned well to do it because they already have Google Plus and Hangouts and we all use it for desktop to desktop sharing and media. So why not uh, put a stake in the ground on the, there's six people sitting around a conference room table and they need to join someone else. So it's yet another sub 1000 unified communications VTC box, which is interesting, I think. Um, yeah. But it has an ecosystem that can sit behind it. So we're keeping an eye on that. I mean, obviously we're a bit different because we're pure software, but they're very similar in their flavors, you know. Hmm. But you know, on the pro AV side, do they still have something to concern themselves with? I mean, it is sort of well, look, we're using this and it's full of glitches, it's full of some issues, um, but it still works. We're using this instead of a telecommunication or a TriCaster system. Right. Um, how long before Google is the uh, benefacting overlord? <laughs> Right. That's a scary question because I think um, there's no way to tell with the crystal ball, but I would bet for most people that would put a date on it, I would, I would bet that they're overestimating the timeline because these guys have such resources, such funding. They can make things happen, and uh, I think that's the biggest scary part for the AV dealers. The other back end of it is, and we've already seen it over the last 10 years, the change in the AV industry uh, – with the IT industry, there are a lot of corporations that very rarely use AV integrators. Right. They're turning to their IT departments. And right. the more yeah. IT-centric boxes, the less the AV dealership or integrator or our channel might be necessary, which is scary. Yeah, but the, channel's, the channel is educating itself pretty quickly. I guess I'm such an optimist that I'm not that scared of it from an AV perspective. I think it's something that the AV community just needs to embrace. It'll happen. I think Daniel's totally right. This is going to happen. So you have to ask yourself, what does my business mean in that sort of future where software drives the AV experience? There's AV endpoint hardware. Uh, maybe there's quality of service in some niche markets where, you know, H.264 and H.263 pipes still matter and things like that. Um, for us, you know, it's sort of like one of these questions where I've had people say to us, well, why do you sell through the AV channel? Well, because I believe that the AV channel understands software and has a lot to add at the endpoint. I mean, audiovisual is about seeing and hearing things. And software that does media sharing or video teleconferencing or unified communications is that centrally it's an AV experience so I want the AV channel to embrace those kind of things I don't want to sell through an IT channel that that comes from a completely different enterprise software background the it's challenge scary, is we'll, yeah. it's funny though because we'll go into a deal and um, there'll be uh, the IT guys are now making the purchase decisions and we're selling through the AV channel so our AV integrators and resellers uh, have to get up to speed so that they're able to communicate to the IT team and say, here's how this will impact your network. Here are the software distribution issues. Here's the upgrade paths and things like that. So, But I've seen it. It's happening. Um, our channel's coming up to speed pretty quick. Yeah, the channel's definitely doing a good job of you know, understanding it and then understanding how to you know, manipulate and play with it. Um, and it's a tough one because how do you convey the message? Because where I feel... Uh, some things are getting overlooked is IT guys can definitely do this. Mm -hmm. But there is a certain element of education and expertise that the AV integrator brings right. to make it a better product. 
the overall yeah. experience better. And I think we're kind of getting, well, not so much shoved out of the way, but overlooked a little bit as to what that value is. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a challenge. It really is. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like the difference between software replacing AV or AV becoming software. And, the, you know, the, the AV becomes software is a very exciting future for everyone, I think, because it's just leveraging software capabilities to do what we already do and leverage our current expertise rather than step aside and let, you know, let the IT guys take over. And I'm seeing more of the AV is embracing software in the last even 18 months than I've ever seen before. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. I think everyone understands it. And, yeah. and a big part of that is education, because if we go back five, seven years ago, one of the problems our industry had was a little bit out of kilter on, you know, earning potential value and running a business, where yeah. back then, the software guys, you had guys making 75, 100, 150,000. Yeah. And from a business standpoint, those numbers and the economics don't work. And right. it's nice to see the industry is kind of looked at that and you have a lot more of uh, people investing in younger people to train them and bring them mm-hmm. up uh, and kind of be in balance because you know, I remember several huge projects you know while at Crestron where you'd have some people analyzing the bid where they've had a you know IBEW 30-year electrician billing out at X and here's a guy programming a control system billing out at 135 an hour right. and people would look at our industry and say uh, you guys don't get it, and it's nice to see that adjustment. So I think that's what really yeah. will help the AV side blend in and you know, stay prominent, I, I hope. Yeah, and there's a lot of corollaries on the AV side to some of the exciting stuff happening in software, like cloud-based services, software as a service. It's just managed services for the AV guys. I mean, they're just managing hardware and knocks and things like that. So there's, there's, there's growth on both sides of the fence, I think. Yeah, I think as you said there, the nice part of that is, and again, shifting in the business, but one thing our industry hadn't really done a good job was uh, was RMR. I mean, you mm-hmm. went out, you sold the box, you installed the box, you went back, and you're done. Well, right. software industry has understood that, either through servicing or servicing like knock centers and other things, there's reoccurring revenue that for a long time our industry was just blind to. Uh, so that bridging and merge is nice because I think that's something that the AV guys are really picking up on and, and yeah. capitalizing on. Yeah. yeah, it's exciting. Well, let's go to something else which I think is actually exciting. I come from an RF background, uh, doing lots of wireless stuff. And in Extreme Tech this week, we have Nature-Inspired Antenna Improves Wireless Performance. Well, if you guys read through this and others have seen this, this is basically someone using what they call the super formula, a new mathematical concept based on basically nature's design. They don't mention Fibonacci numbers, but I'm sure there's some of that in there for all of you conspiracy theorists. Um, (laughs) But it does sort of bode a new, maybe more aesthetic and faster transmission scheme. Uh, Dan, have you looked at this stuff? And what, what do you think about its potential? Um, well, I've been reading about it. I haven't played with anything yet, but I've been just watching and reading some of the white papers and stuff. Um, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I I worry about wireless because you know more and more devices, and even the ability then to secure those devices, like the big target hack. I mean, think about it. We're hearing now the truth that this part of this process came through, you know, a refrigerator that was networked. Yeah. So you look at all these devices and all this wireless, and I, I keep worrying, 
you know, when is it going to be so saturated that, okay, it's wireless, it's handy, but what kind of performance are you really getting? So I think this is interesting in the light that we need something. And it's not just, you know, G or N or something. We, it needs to go to the next level because I think it's going to become so prevalent in, oh, so many products that it'll work, but I think it's going to slow things down where we better be looking at the next gen. And that's what's interesting with these, you know, people are working on because it's got some interesting things coming to the table. But again, as we said before, does it get adopted? How does it get adopted? Yeah. Oh, it's such a mess. But there's so much pressure for this kind of technology. That's I think, you know, I look at it as there's world pressure to innovate and people will innovate when it happens. So if you look at the trends, you've got more and more people like Daniel saying with mobile devices that are connected to the network somehow. Um, and then most of those people are now starting to deploy their applications and data in the cloud. So you've got this significant separation between data and the endpoint that has the antenna attached to it. So when I sit in a meeting, you know, to bring my data to bear, I used to have to carry my laptop into the room. Now I could have an iPad and want to open it up and do wireless streaming or whatever it is from the cloud. So that's a tremendous amount of pressure on the network for performance because it's, you know, my daily business is now driven that way. I'm at a trade show or wherever it is. You've got to be able to pull that data quick. But the antennas actually, it's kind of funny. I read that article that you sent in. It's got another thing that I thought was really cool, and it's 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 a different kind of material. It's using a dielectric material. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I remember back, so my PhD was in synthetic aperture radar and high-altitude sensing. Gesundheit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they had they had that stuff back then. The military had access to it. I just don't know why it never got commercialized until recently. They have, you know, really long tether antennas. They'd fly out behind an airplane to to do radar flyovers with those dielectrics. So it looks like what these guys have done is twisted them up in a really clever way, really tight, so they can fit inside of a phone. Just super cool. I love that stuff. Yeah, that could really be a big change because uh, yeah. it's going to bring something to the table that's sorely needed very quickly. Yeah. Dan, let me ask you this. As you design hardware uh, and, and you do real boxes, real devices, well, have we been looking in the wrong place or we have finally come to the end of sort of that engineering aspect of looking at how to make things, and now we're going back to the organic. And I hate to say organic, that's such a loaded word, but <laughs> we're using this sort of nature's mathematical shaping to improve things that we've already made. For your engineers, for your guys who are making stuff, is this now the next step, the next sort of corner to turn and go, let's look here? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you know what's happened is for quite a long time, and then when we hit the, you know, the recession, I think everyone was really just in such a mindset of, you know, how do I build it cheaper and faster? Well, you're not going to really advance technology always trying to design cheaper, faster. Um, you know, new technologies and new things cost some money, uh, and you really need to have that engineering mindset and, and that balance, you know, to look and say, okay, I know this will do what I need, but what's that next step uh, if we go beyond that? Like for us, you know, nanotechnology with speakers is a big thing right now. Uh, it's not quite there, but, you know, sure, it's easier just to take your standard speaker, the spider, the baffle, you know, and pick a cone and put it together. But um, I think you need to. And, uh, you know, some companies aren't in the position to be able to do it, but I think it's imperative because you need to think outside, you know, what we're currently used to uh, because that's how, you know, innovation really happens. 
so I think it, it's imperative. Our guys do it. Um, we have to kind of limit that a little bit. Uh, sometimes they they can get pretty far ahead of themselves. Where I say I see it, you're you're right. That's fantastic. I can't sell it. Hmm. <laughs> it's wonderful, but the price point on it is such that you know I can't recoup our investment in the R&D and creation and the and then the the build runs you need to do as far as MOQs and things. It's just economically you know, not viable, but you have to walk that that fine line because I think you know if you don't, you could be really outdated very quickly. So you know you really need to on the software side, you're, you're seeing a lot of that. You know the maximization of you know what they're able to do with different processors and different things that they're doing. Uh, so I think it's exciting, uh, but it's a real difficult one between the economics of business and future advancements you know you're always held back to that you know that accounting excel spreadsheet by somebody uh, unless you're just a mammoth think tank with billions of dollars which that's fun uh, but most of the world isn't operating in that uh, yeah. that little area hmm. now you're hinting at like the what we call the 80 20 rule there's like an 80 percent incrementalism and bottom line and 20 percent you have to just innovate and jump ahead so even as a small company, we, we try to, obviously, we're cash conscious and what's our ROI and all our activities, but we try to say, well, you know, 20% of that should be exploratory and draw on metaphors that are maybe never explored before and see where we land, you know. Yeah, keeps no, you, true. keeps you excited anyway. At least keeps my engineers excited. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. It keeps them on their toes. You yeah. never believe it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I brought it up with you, Dan, as well, because with your name, the DaVinci Group, and I watched something on, was it PBS a couple of days ago, about um, how DaVinci developed certain things by watching and his very astute mm. observational skills in nature. And some of it worked and some of it didn't, but he was so close by watching some of that stuff. And here's an example with this super mm. formula saying, hey, wait, this will work in applying to this. And we've been missing that for a while. Uh, last Very week we talked so. about how research and development seems to get a bad riff from a lot of people. <laughs> and when you come to budget time, and they're like, you know, well, the government's spending money on this. And, well, yeah, but 10, 20 years down the road, suddenly you're going to have a product or something that improves lives or saves right. lives that came out of it. Well, um, one example, which is mind-boggling, is you could tear it down to a core, but Tim Berners-Lee, if the government didn't spend money for what it was at the time with the intranet, uh, we wouldn't yeah. have what we have today. That's right. And look at where we are and what's been going on just because of the internet. Now, okay, you know, Al Gore helped and he definitely you know, got involved. <laughs> but um, it's things like that where if someone didn't give a budget, if someone didn't, you know, give them the funding to go do certain things, you can see a lot of, uh, you know, things like that. Yeah. Even another one, you know, today, look at cars. You know, we're going to have a self-driving car not too far out. That's all military technology. Yeah, it, it was. It was all DARPA. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. I, I mean, even outside of sort of specific projects, there's hundreds and hundreds of companies. I think most most taxpayers don't realize we're funded and launched by the federal government through our R&D. I mean, Immersive is a case in point. We came out of National Science Foundation funding, uh, DARPA and DOD, hmm. oh, and awesome. then we launched the company. So we went right through what's called an EPSCoR program and then um, an, uh, SBIR, Small Business Initiative Research, when we launched the company. So that's taxpayer money, but you pay it back is the idea, right? Because you create jobs, you create more tax revenue, and then you know pays back in spades. 
and you're not giving it all back to the vulture capitalists. I love that. Right. Yeah. That's great. Well, right <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that phrase. Well, okay. Well, uh, well, you know, something that we can we can actually choose an example of that is uh, the guys at NYU. Uh, if we all know about the multi-touch screen that was developed at NYU. Yep. Uh, they did a lot of stuff where they put it up on the web very early on in the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, and then suddenly, a lot of touch point, a lot of manufacturers of touch screens came up with multi-touch point, And that was all done at NYU. Right. Another thing that was done at NYU, and by the way, if anyone's listening and I remember Yorb, if you grew up in the city in the 19, late 80s, early 90s, there was something called Yorb. It was an interactive television show. <laughs> you dialed in with a touchstone phone from NYU and navigated your way around this virtual world. <laughs> Look it up. It's very cool. interesting. It's confusing when you watch the video and you go, that's annoying. But <laughs> when we were doing it, it was really cool. Um, but yes, so something else they've been doing with and dealing with is touchscreens in the New York City subway. Now, if you've ridden the subway, you know how hard it is to find information. There's the old peeling maps. They've developed a new touchscreen to use for information. And what fascinates me about this and I want to talk to you guys about is, one, the tech acceptance by passengers. So there's an age difference and there's a difference of uh, thought process of finding information. And also the process for making a touchscreen work in such an environment. Um, Chris, I'm going to go to you. Yeah. You've read through this thing. Yep. It was a, quite a, a feat for them to make this work. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, there's a couple things I see right away here. I'm, you know, I get really excited because what got me even to start the company, Immersive, was that I, I realized displays should be shared infrastructure. That was sort of our, our mantra. Shouldn't displays, just like printers or wireless, be part of my public spaces that I can access and utilize? So that's the vision, and these guys are starting to implement it in maybe one of the most difficult locations on the planet, the New York subway. So, I mean, the challenges are huge. They're using a touch technology, though, that um, that's specifically designed for digital signage in rough environments. So, you know, it's not a subtle little tap you do, I think. You have to tap it pretty hard. In fact, I've got a 3M touchscreen right behind me back over there somewhere. Um, and in full disclosure, 3M is a strategic partner of us. So I, I knew about this project as it was getting unfolded with the touch team there. It's cool. Um, I think probably what has to happen, though, for the on the usability side, you need to have, you know, it out for at least a year before you see what the sustainability model looks like, and whether or not their targets of graffiti and things like that, or they end up getting hacked by some really great clever hackers, or you never know, right? Well, the I think those are issues. Zombies. That, yeah, <laughs> yeah, those are big issues, though. I mean, you know the. The touchscreen technology itself will allow you, you have to hit pretty hard, but it's for, for a reason. It's that, you know, it says the, the embedded wave sensing on each edge. Um, I don't know. I've been told that that is super robust to tough environments. You know, you can kick it and punch it and things like that. But I don't know if they've had it in trials long enough to know in a year what those will look like or how they interact. So. And I asked, I asked the question to you again because the article concentrated a lot on people in the subway not really knowing what it is. They thought it probably was digital signage of anything. Right. But they really wouldn't approach it until someone came up to it. And this fascinates me because of the years of working for Crestron and doing yeah. trade shows and doing trade shows for my current company, you have to engage them and you have to have these people 
using it as the theater, basically. <laughs> yeah, but George, the reason I read that and thought, you know, the reason that is, is we've lived in the wrong metaphor for displays for so long. Mm. And then if I'm sitting in a Starbucks or I'm at the airport waiting for my flight and I'm, I'm surrounded by trillions of pixels of different displays, right, I have no access to those. So I'm sitting in an environment where I'm being taught all the time that displays spray things at me and I'm not allowed to interact with those displays. Now, that the generation below me is, is probably going to be quite a bit different. Um, you know, but that's part of the reason we developed the software we did is I don't believe that that should be the case. When I walk into a conference room, I should be able to sit down and use the display without having to claim ownership of it by grabbing a video cable, for example, right? So I think what you're seeing is people in the subway wandering by a display are going to assume it's the old model, that it's spraying something at you. You're not supposed to interact with it. That'll take some time to get adopted for sure. Yeah, that, that just takes time in that environment. Boy, that's a real test bed, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I find it fascinating because we're so used to ATMs. We're so used to our iPad, touch tablets, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but even th even with that, the majority of people, there's a percent of people who haven't even touched an ATM touchscreen. Right. And even then, that functionality is not quite what they've seen. And I, I think it was a reality check for me going, well, of course you would try to expand it. And of course <laughs> right. you would try to pinpoint something. And then you go, wait, you know, my eight-year-old might know how to do that, but I wonder if my mother would. Right. You know, she might well, just see and go, point, why George, is it changing? When yeah. I was at Crestron years ago, you know, starting out, and this is back where at the time, uh, the first color screen, it's that long ago. Um, you know, really, what was it? And for my family and friends, they'd ask what I do. And the only thing I could do to put it into a realm of understanding for them, you know, some would understand the automation aspect, but for most, I'd say, well, you know your ATM machine? Yeah. You know how you touch it? You know, put in your code? Yeah. It's kind of like that. It's a touch screen, you know. And right. it's just the generational thing, as you said. Uh, it's fascinating watching from generation to generation, you know, their acceptance, their usage, their understanding of it. Yeah, it's totally generational. And even if you do have iPads and you're touching them all the time, that's you using a personal device, which is quite a bit different. You know, it's a different approach to the world that you can walk up to a screen that, that you don't own, but you're welcome to interact with it. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's different. I mean, even I've seen people do things like they'll come to a meeting where we're running wireless streaming for the displays in the environment, right? And they get nervous that they, there's not a video cable. And it's definitely a generational thing. It's... Um, you know, it's changing quickly. Well, all right, so let's talk about something that's been, been sort of my favorite topic, and both Tim Albright, my co-founder, and, and I have been talking about a lot, which is OLED. Mm -hmm. OLED has, uh, it's always been the year of OLED, hasn't it? Every year, like, this is <laughs> it, this is it, this is it. Yeah. Well, now they're cutting the price of the full HD OLED units down to a reasonable price, actually, $7,999. Now, of course, you and I are not going to do it, and most of the people listening probably can't afford this for their house, but that's a significant price drop from 14000 or maybe 15000 falling into that 99 thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I'll start with you, Chris. Is LLDD finally going to find some kind of niche, or is this LG saying, nobody's buying it, we've got to find a way to create a market? I think it's a little of both. I mean, 
Probably there's, you know, market drivers that I'm not even aware of that LG is deciding to adopt. And you also have to ask, is there is there something else at work there besides even just OLED's position in the market? Is is LG looking to, you know, plant more sockets for its streaming services or whatever it may be on the display side? Um, but, you know, it, it seems like maybe I, I think I blogged about this about two months ago or something, um, how... I was almost facetiously predicting that OLEDs would become cheaper, but it wasn't. It didn't have anything to do with um, LG and their business plans. It was more about the technology, because there's a new research paper out that came out about a year ago on the metal requirements for OLEDs, and there's a new technology that basically let, lets you get away from things like the iridium that's required, and that's very expensive to mine and get and process. Mm -hmm. So you know. Has it already started to impact the market and people are seeing that? Um, it's probably not yet, but it's definitely a trend that I think will happen. I think there'll become a, a price point change in OLEDs over the next 18 months that'll be take them even farther below what we're seeing here. Is, is graphene one of those materials that may or may not cause um, LED to become something passe? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, it's right now they're dependent on iridium and platinum, which mm. are the two very hard to get. Um, they have to be disposed of in careful ways. They're hard to mine, etc. But there was some research. I'm trying to remember what um, what group it was. Oh, Regensburg University um, developed a paper that shows how to basically control and illuminate an LED-like platform without those metals, without mm -hmm. that content, which would change dramatically the price point of making an OLED panel. So maybe that's already starting to take effect in the R&D labs, and they're seeing, you know, the writing on the wall that the prices have to change. Dan, uh, you come from selling gear and selling hardware and upselling uh, clients into something better and, you know, for the most part, what they wanted. They just didn't know it. Um, but how would you sell OLED? How do you convince someone that this lighter, faster, brighter, higher contrast uh, device is actually worthwhile? Oh, boy, that one's a real tough one. Um, <laughs> you know, as we were saying, I think it's right now the price point, even though it's dropped, I think it's still so specific to the client and their net worth because uh, some would buy it just because it's the latest and greatest. Um, money be no object. It's got almost like, you know, plasma back in the day when it came out. You know, you'd buy a 42-inch plasma for $10,000. Um, and it wasn't everybody. It was the people who could actually justify, you know, that expense. Um, the OLED, it, it's very tough because there are some advantages, but I think also what's happening is, aside from just the technology, there's also some economic, um, you know, what's, what the right word might be, but some balance. Because I think even we're seeing with the highest net worth, they'll do what they want, but some of them even will look at it and say, okay, that is uh, how much? That's $10,000. Well, you know, that 84-inch for $5,000 looks really pretty good, um, you know. I, could, I don't need that extra expense, and that's what makes it even more difficult because you know, you're seeing so much in the technology sector get better and better that it used to be that you could see pretty strong advances and you know, benefits uh, from a price value analysis, and you know, now it's tougher and tougher you know, to explain to somebody why a $2,000 set or a product might mm -hmm. look or sound pretty darn good, but this one which is, you know, two, three, ten times as much, um, you know, it's still a viable product, but I think that 
margin of clientele that's out there is, is smaller and smaller. So I think LG's got a you know a lot of their plate there because they've got an awful lot invested in that technology. And until they can find a way to bring that down to an affordable format, um, I don't know if they're going to get back what they, they need out of that. I really don't know. Yeah, I mean, in markets where um, high contrast and color ratios and things like that really matter in niche markets like medical visualization and analysis or, you know, oil and gas, pick your market where you pick the wrong color, you made a, you know, a $10 million mistake, those, those displays probably have a great home. I would, if I was LG, I would be looking for other enablers. I mean, o OLEDs lend themselves to really cool form factors like bendable or curved or more immersive displays for VTC. If it was me, I would be bundling that up with that kind of technology and saying, where, where does that matter to people that they feel more immersed in the imagery, you know, like in a teleconferencing session or something, and then trying to push it into those markets for those reasons and not necessarily the fact that it's higher contrast. Because that's a, that's a tough sell, I think. Yeah, no, good point. I agree. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a tough one because when do you, well, let me ask you this then. When do you think we're going to get into the sub 2000 range with, with OLED? Let's see. Oh. So I'll, I'll take my uh, technology trend graph in my <laughs> mind. So Regensburg University writes a paper on how to do this a year ago. It's going to take about eight years before it's completely productized and in the market. So if that was a year ago, we've got another seven years before mm. dramatically changes everything. So probably if I was a big company, I would try to beat the market by three years. So that means two and a half years from now, we'll see another big price drop. And it'll be based on this new, it's a, it's pretty deep science. I mean, it's a, a new formula for, for moving electrons around um, into electron holes, right, with OLEDs. So that takes a while to come out of a lab and actually end up in a television set. But... Two, two and a half, three years, maybe? Hmm. Yeah, my magic eight ball says um, that it won't be very you know, very soon. Because yeah. uh, it still goes back to, uh, and again, as we were saying earlier, R&D and budgets. Uh, LG yeah. is already having some financial difficulties. So at some point, you're going to have upper management looking mm -hmm. at what they're working on, the R&D budget, the sales cycle, and either reinvest more, or you never know. They might just say... Right. It might be slower because you know the financial draw uh, on the company. You know, it's a very tough one because that's a lot of money, a lot of investment in the R&D side of it, and manufacturing. Mm -hmm. I mean, no one thinks about that. One thing to invent it, it's another thing to manufacture it in volume. Right. right. Hmm. You know, that brings up actually one of our last topics today, which is when we talk about R&D, Draper is something that I don't think anyone expected them to do, uh, and at this last couple of days at, uh, I think it was ISE, they released a whole new set of screens, actually engineered and designed to be specially and specifically tuned to, attuned, excuse me the word, uh, <laughs> for projection. Uh, I thought we were done with what we needed to know about screen technology. I think a lot of people were. Uh, Dan, I'm going to throw this to you. Do we need a new screen or screens? Uh, well, I mean, it, with what they're saying they've done, I would say... The answer would be yes. Uh, how critical or how much market share that will get, that's questionable uh, because I think we've seen the screen you know, technology and materials uh, really grow and improve to a point where a lot of great-looking screens that do a really nice job with light containment and color saturation and stuff, uh, the, it gets back to the same old thing. 
how much different or how much better is this? And, you know, again, that valuation of is it much more money or not, uh, will it upset the standard guard as it is, or will it just be an upper-end, high-end selection? Uh, not having seen it, I really can't say, but mm. I, I'm with what you were saying, George. I had thought that we kind of reached the pinnacle of, okay, you know, it can't get much better, but, you know, never count out engineering that, you know, they, if they found something that, you know, really surprised them, uh, it, it very well could be, but then it will just be a matter of, you know, how quickly, how much money, and how quickly dealers would adapt it. Yeah. Yeah, well, Chris, I mean, we, we definitely have reached a point of diminishing returns, I think. I hate to be a naysayer, but you know, I'm just trying to picture a typical customer that's looking at one screen versus another. How much better can it be uh, versus the price change for the new technology? I mean, it, ultimately, you go back to how many, you know, what's the, what's the field of view and what's the response function of that screen when I illuminate it with light? And the physics of that's completely understood. I mean, it's been understood for centuries. And now the manufacturing side and the distribution side and the chemistry has been worked out so that you can build them cheaply and effectively. And I don't know. I guess I would have to take a close look at it to, to you know, really make a careful judgment. But maybe yeah, it's I mean, maybe it'll be value in the high end. Yeah. Well, now, again, this is through only dealer channels and specific yep. dealer people that can get these and sell these. And I'm wondering, like, for very specific environments, very high gain, very, you know, public access, public spaces, uh, NASA probably, and the government and stuff like that, this would do really well. But I'm also tweaked that there's new things to be found out about projection screens <laughs> and new ways to do it that may improve it. Now, I've seen some video which shows the the difference between, say, a wall and the screen, so putting just a corner or a patch of the screen in to show it, um, it seems to be a remarkable increase in visibility and brightness and gain and all that. Uh, I like that we still have a new mar a new market for projection screens. And, and i got to ask, actually, again, I'm not a projection guy. I deal with it in the world of live staging that I deal with, but at home, I'm not really a projection guy. Uh, I'll throw that to you, Dan. Is really projection where it's at, or am I just missing the boat on it and I really need a screen and a projector? Well, you know, it depends on the application. I think one of the biggest uh, limitations that they've had in the projection world um, has been, the, you know, the introduction of all the larger screen flat panels. When you can go out and get a 60, 65, and even spend a lot of money and get an 85-inch flat screen, um, it really causes problems for the projection market because, you know, you look at the business triangle again, you know, different segments, but even at an 80-20 rule, um, the 20% that could afford it, you know, they'll say, well, boy, that flat screen is real nice in the wall, it's pretty, it's this, it's that. But the one thing that projection just can't overcome is ambient light. Mm. And that's a big issue where people would love to have these theaters and projectors and big screens. And when they can control the lights to the point where it really needs to be, that's wonderful. But, you know, in everyday life, not everyone can have a dedicated home theater room in their house. They'll have a family room or something, and it gets tough because it's hard to keep those lights as low as you need it uh, all the time. I think that's the biggest challenge they've had with projection once the panels started getting past 40, 45 inches. I think that's really hurt them. Yeah, I have my own bias there a little bit because the, um, you know, the equations sort of change quickly if you can gang multiple projectors together. And so that's one of the products we do. And if you look at like oh, that sure. Delta WX wall, 
that's six HD projectors blended together seamlessly. So you get at least six times the amount of brightness and six times the amount of pixels out of those mm -hmm. engines. So that, at least if you're doing the cost-benefit analysis there, suddenly you jump up a couple notches. Um, ambient light rejection, though, is always a challenge. It'll always be a challenge. But if you're looking for a, you know, if you're doing command and control in a big conference room and you could put six times HD against a wall and dim the lights a little bit and get it for less than 100K, why not, you know? <laughs> yeah, projectors are also, you know, you got to also think, like, I, I get people ask me this a lot, like, well, so you guys have software that really helps projectors. Do projectors have a future, really, given all these, you know, big, giant flat panels? And, you know, one answer is the one I just gave. But sort of at a deeper level, if you think about it, well, what's the advantage of a projector? It's able to create an image where it doesn't reside, right? The engine for creating it doesn't have to be there. So, you know, I've worked with some folks both in the art world and then in the technology space where they're projecting onto really interesting surfaces. We've all seen projection mapping and things like that at Infocom and ISC, and um, that's another advantage. And I've seen some early R&D work in the area of projected interfaces. So, you know, situated computing. Think of it as my desktop uh, has something on it, and I want to have an interface that's relevant to that object. Well, why wouldn't I project it onto that object from a distance? Because mm. I certainly can't bolt an OLED screen onto everything that I want to touch. <laughs> well, George, like in uh, staging, the interesting one, a buddy of mine in Florida created a system uh, that allows him to project onto a waterfall. Cool. And yeah. what he did was he created a whole trough system with the right diameter openings, but he also then, you know, used the water, but then put an, uh, it was an oil or something in the water, which allowed the actual image to have, you cool. know, more of an impact on it. And that's where I see projection always having, you know, a, a yeah. good footing in a world. Cause you can do some really creative stuff. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and don't forget, you can do, um, so if you build an OLED panel with pixel sizing and aspect, it's fixed because you have a big machine punching out the panel. With projectors, it's flexible. So we have yeah. some customers in the intelligence community that are interested in things like, well, you know, the fact that I could have a high-resolution uh, multi-projector wall, but I have a very high-resolution inset by just having two of the projectors much closer. So if I'm looking at a map, I want to move it over into the high-res area. And by default, physically, I have tighter pixels on the on the display surface. It's very hard to imagine building that with a traditional, you know, flat panel technology. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, talking about it, but we we all remember the GE Telaria. Yes. <laughs> the change in the oil film. And, uh, and the big nice. change from that, the Hughes light engine. The Volkswagen projector. Yes, <laughs> the jet ski. It was about the size of a jet ski back oh, then. Oh, yes. boy. Makes you feel old very quickly. <laughs> yes, the, the, the truckers that I used to work with uh, when I was at my first iteration of what's now called World Stage, but with Sharp Weisberg, the truckers called it the huge. Because <laughs> it was an enormous. I mean, we went from the three-gun Sonys to this enormous single-gun light engine. <laughs> the huge. Oh, we got to move the huge again? <laughs> uh, on that note, cool. guys, we have actually chewed up an entire hour, and it didn't cool. really feel like it. Oh, wow. I want to yeah, thank fun. my guests for coming today. They have been. He's Christopher Janes. He is the founder and CTO of Mersive. Christopher, where can people find more about your company and anything social that you guys put out? Uh, just go to Mersive.com. I run a blog called the Visualist, Visualist Blog, so that's just blog.mersive.com. You can follow me on Twitter. There's a link on the blog, too. So, yeah, check Very it out. Very cool. And, of course, my old friend, Daniel Kippy Cash. He is the CEO and co-founder of Da Vinci. Where can they find more about you, man? 
uh, we're on, you know, of course, the website is tdgaudio.com, and they can also just on Facebook, uh, again, tdgaudio.com, uh, have its own site and you know, page on Facebook there. But, you know, also just watching all the news and blogs. You know, we're just out there having a good time. We're all from this industry and, you know, just love working with the dealers and getting involved where we get more feedback. So we, we just keep popping up everywhere we can. All right. Well, we're certainly going to try to have you guys on again. It's been a lot. Great. It's been educational for me, especially. Uh, you have been listening to AV Week. This is, is a show of avnation.tv. That's avnation.tv. We have shows on Pico Projection, on education technology. We have stuff on the Pico Projectors and Projection Freak. Jeff Gooch, if you're ever really into projection, he has that there. AV Social, a whole host of other shows. Oh, I have a show called Live Life about live staging uh, technologies. Please do go and check them out. avnation.tv, that's avnation.tv. Thank you for watching. We'll talk to you all very soon. <laughs> <laughs>